This is a Rooster Teeth production. October 31st, 1999. Egypt Air Flight 990, a Boeing 767 with 217 people on board, is at cruising altitude on a flight from New York's JFK Airport bound for Cairo International Airport. The relief first officer has shown up in the cockpit to take the place of the active first officer ahead of schedule. After some bickering about whose turn it is to fly the plane, the active first officer relents and lets the relief first officer take over. Several minutes later, the captain excuses himself to use the lavatory, and while he is gone, something goes horribly wrong. The plane begins nosediving to the Atlantic Ocean below. The captain fights his way back to the cockpit to find the first officer struggling with the controls. The captain pulls the plane out of the dive, but then loses control and the plane dives again, this time hitting the ocean, killing all on board. What happened to cause this flight to lose control? Could anything have been done to avoid tragedy? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. I, I got I got to come up with a better intro. I always I say that every time. It's Gus and Chris. Uh, it's Gus and Chris <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> Welcome we to Black Cruising Box altitude. Down. When we've reached cruising altitude, you can put your headphones on and go ahead and listen to your favorite <laughs> podcast in the world, Black Box Down. Yeah, just be sure to... Uh, uh, Go to your social networks and add a, at Black Box Down and make sure it's in the uh, subscribe position. <laughs> That's good. I like it. Before we get started, of course, please follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, Black Box Down Pod. We post supplemental images and uh, you know videos and stuff that you might not be able to fully picture in your mind's eye when you're listening to a podcast episode. Yeah. And we also have a premium uh, subscription for people who want to support us even more. Oh, yeah. That's right. I, I forgot about it. <laughs> I really legitimately forgot about that. Thank you, Chris. That's $2.99 a month. You can get episodes ad-free and get them a little early, day before. Uh, you can get more information at blackboxdownpod.com. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it's probably right in the app. You see it. <laughs> There's like a little lock or something. Yeah. You'll see it in there. Hit that lockbox. Unlock it. So we're here today. We're talking about Egypt Air Flight 990. This is a... International flight, obviously, from mm-hmm. uh, it originated from Los Angeles going to Cairo, Egypt, but had a stopover in New York City uh, back on October 31st, 1999. Uh, and the leg we're talking about is the New York to Cairo leg. The flight was crewed by Captain Ahmed El Habashi, who was 57 years old with 14,384 flight hours. And First Officer Adele Anwar, who was 36 years old, who was returning home for his wedding. The report didn't have his hours because he was not flying during the crash. Like we said, there was a a bit of confusion about whose turn it was to fly the plane. We'll get into that in a bit. Mm-hmm. Because there was a relief crew on board, and we've talked about this before, when there's a really long flight, there'll be extra pilots to take over so that no one pair of pilots gets overworked. So there was a relief crew on board that consisted of Captain Rauf Nuraldin, who was 52 years old, and Relief First Officer Gamil Al-Batudi, who was 59 years old, with 12,538 hours. Like I mentioned earlier, it was this Relief First Officer who was in the cockpit, not the other first officer who was going back for his wedding. Mm-hmm. The aircraft used was a 10-year-old Boeing 767 with 33,354 hours and 7,594 cycles. And also, coincidentally enough, the airline's chief pilot for Boeing 767s was also on board. He wasn't in the cockpit. He was just he just happened to be on board, <laughs> oh. along with nine flight attendants and 203 passengers. So the flight flew from Los Angeles to New York without any incident, arrived mm-hmm. at the gate just after midnight, and the crew that flew from L.A. deboarded, and then the new crew arrived at the airport and started preparing for the next flight. By 1.01 a.m., the crew had requested and received and correctly read back their IFR clearance from air traffic control, and they began to taxi to the runway. 
The flight took off at 1.20 a.m. and began climbing to its cruising altitude of 33,000 feet. And according to the cockpit voice recorder at 1.40, as the airplane was still climbing, the relief first officer suggested that he relieve the current first officer at the controls, saying that he wasn't going to be able to get any sleep anyway. He suggested that he would go sit at the controls for two hours and then, you know, continue flying because he's not supposed to be there for another two hours. So, like, the relief first officer comes in and says, hey, I can't get any rest anyway. Why don't you just let me take over now? I'll fly the next two hours and then, you know, I'm supposed to start and then I'll continue flying from that point on. The active first officer responded saying, but I slept. I slept, indicating that he had plenty of rest. Uh You know, there's no reason for this uh, relief to happen. And the relief first officer said back, you mean you're not going to get up? You will get up. Go and get some rest and come back. The flying mm. first officer started scolding, saying, you should have told me this and indicated that he would then sit beside him in the cockpit because he is not sleepy. So they're just arguing, you know, whose turn is it? This argument sounds like oddly childish. <laughs> like, no. You know, it's funny you, you say that. It's like I think about like, like mom told me it was my turn to play with it, you know, like <laughs> like that kind of thing. Yeah. I had the same uh, thought in my head. And maybe it's just because you're reading back text rather than like hearing the inflection, right? But yeah, maybe maybe that's it. <laughs> maybe yeah, like I, I'm, I'm predisposed since I was already thinking that to read it that way. <laughs> but it does sound just out of baseline. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So eventually, uh, you know, they keep going back and forth a bit, and ultimately, dad or mom has to step in. Well, no, not even the 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 captain who's flying at the time does not step in. He oh. lets them argue. You know, you would think that the captain would step in and say, "Hey, this is what's going on," mm-hmm. uh, but he he doesn't. So they keep arguing, and eventually. It was decided that the relief first officer was going to go ahead and take over at this point, ahead of schedule. Okay. And then shortly after this, the sound of the cockpit door operating was recorded on the cockpit voice recorder. And the active first officer, who's the one being replaced, Mm -hmm. in a soft voice said, do you see how he does whatever he pleases? He does whatever he pleases. Some days he doesn't work at all. Oh. Then after a while, the two first officers switched seats. I think if I remember right, I think the agreement they came to was the relief first officer was going to go back to the cabin. He would eat his meal and then they would swap. So still okay. ahead of schedule, but not immediately at that moment. So that's why you hear the cockpit door. And then the first officer is kind of like mumbling about the situation. And then, you know, several minutes later, they swap out. And the captain's just like, like just being quiet. Yeah, there's um, I, I, we'll get to get into this uh, a bit further down in the episode. But this relief first officer like I said, he was 59 years old. He had 12,538 flight hours. He uh, was, I believe, the most senior first officer at Egypt Air. Oh, okay. So even though he wasn't a captain, he ha- he was the first officer with the most seniority. Why wasn't he a captain? We're going to get into that, Chris. Ooh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's, all, that's all important background that we're going to get into eventually. I don't want to spoil it all right now. Okay. But I'm just trying to give a little context for this fight and for maybe why the captain didn't step in and settle it. Okay. So the flight leveled off at 33,000 feet at about 1.44 a.m. Three minutes later, the crew were instructed to change radio frequencies, which they did, and then they reported in on the new frequency, and this was their last transmission to air traffic control. Shortly after the radio changed, the relief first officer said, look, here's the new first officer's pen. Give it to him, please. God spare you. And someone replied with, yeah. It's believed that the relief first officer was talking to the first officer that was flying and was referring to one of the other pilots who was seated in the cabin at the time. So... The relief officer who showed up early found someone else's pen, gave it Uh to the first officer he was replacing to take back Mm. to the cabin to give to another pilot who uh, was back there. Because remember, the the active first officer had previously said, well, you can replace me, but I'm going to sit here. Okay. So, you know, he found this pen. He's like, hey, this, you know, what's the other guys go take it. 
And then a few seconds after this exchange, the captain got up to use the restroom, and the other original first officer left the cockpit at this time as well. So there's only one now, the Correct. relief first officer in the cockpit. Correct. The, the one who was the most senior first officer in all of Egypt. Yeah. 11 seconds after the captain left, there was an unintelligible comment reported on the cockpit voice recorder. And then 10 seconds after that, the relief first officer quietly stated, I rely on God. What? Okay, so I don't want you to get alarmed by this. Okay, all right. <laughs> this is a complicated incident. They're all, they're all complicated. I believe uh, my, my pronunciation is going to be bad. But what he said specifically was tawakalt ala ala, which apparently is a common phrase used by Egyptian people in their day-to-day activities asking for God's assistance at a task at hand. It's, it's something that they'll say before they leave their house to go on a trip or... Okay. It's just like a common thing. Yeah, it's like, God bless this day. or I don't know. Right, yeah, <laughs> or like, like someone, something... someone, sne- someone sneezes and you say, God bless you or something like yeah, that, yeah. right? It's like, it's, it's just a common phrase that's said. There was an Islamic scholar in Cairo mm-hmm. who certified that the meaning of that phrase is, I depend in my daily affairs on the omnipotent Allah alone. So I, I'm going to spoil a little bit of the later part of this episode. The Egyptians were, were a little sensitive about this. Uh, they wanted to make sure that there was appropriate cultural context in the final report about okay. what this actually meant. Because like you just like that reaction you had right away, it uh-huh, seems like very uh-huh. quizzical. Like, what is this? Uh, it's there's some cultural differences at play here. Yeah. And language it doesn't inherently it's not like inherently bad or that he's right. Like, yeah, right. That he's like going to try and be, uh, I don't know, like crash the plane himself, right? Well. <laughs> oh, wait. No, uh, Did I speak too soon? Yeah, Chris, this is a complicated one. We're going we're, we're gonna to get into it. Um, so at the same time when he said that, there were no sounds or events recorded by the flight recorders that would indicate any airplane anomaly or other unusual circumstance preceded by the statement. However, about 30 seconds after this, the cockpit voice recorder recorded the sound of an electric seat motor And then, like 27 seconds after that, the autopilot was disconnected. Mm -hmm. The airplane remained in level flight for about eight seconds, during which the relief first officer again uttered that phrase. And then the throttle levers were moved from cruise power to idle. At 1.49 and 54 seconds, the flight data recorder recorded an abrupt nose-down elevator movement, and subsequently the airplane began to rapidly pitch nose-down and descend. Over the next eight seconds, the first officer kept repeating that phrase, and the elevators move further in the nose down direction. Repeating the I rely on God? Yes. Phrase? Okay. Uh, I don't, I don't want to, I'm, I'm, I'm very particular. I don't want to say I rely on God because yeah. even, even though that's what the NTSB report says, there is other context to it. Yeah. So that's, what, that's why I just keep saying that phrase. Okay. At 150 and six seconds, the captain returned to the cockpit and started asking what was happening. Because they're like, they like nose diving real hard at this point, right. right? Yeah, they're diving. And in fact, one of the NTSB investigators commented that he doesn't know how the captain was able to get back into the cockpit because the dive was so extreme. Maybe he just slid. No, it would be like when you go into a dive like that, it's, all, it's like negative G. Like you start almost floating. Oh, so, yeah, it's, it, it would be very difficult to move around. So, you know, when the captain comes back in and asks what's happening, the relief first officer repeated his phrase, and the cockpit voice recorder recorded the sound of numerous thumps and clinks as the load factor fell to negative 0.2 G. So, yeah, they're at negative G, so they would be kind of weightless. Wow, that is crazy. At 1.50 and 8 seconds, the airplane exceeded its maximum operating airspeed of 0.86 Mach, mm-hmm. and the master warning alarm began to sound. The relief first officer to himself repeated the phrase again for the last time as the captain continued to ask what was happening. 
As the airplane was descending through 27,300 feet, the flight data recorder recorded both elevator surfaces beginning to move in the nose-up direction, and then the rate of descent began to decrease. Real quick, you said the the maximum of 0.86 Mach? Is that what you said? How yes. fast is that in like miles per hour or kilometers per hour? So that can vary depending on the uh, air pressure. Uh-huh. A rough estimate would be, you would say, like about 660 miles an hour. That's real fast. That's it's like pretty fast. three times what, or no, double what a typical cruising speed is, right? So uh, a typical 767 will cruise at about 530 miles an hour. Oh, uh, And okay. they were going about 660. So they're, it's not like they're going double their typical cruise mm-hmm. speed, but they are over their speed. And we've talked about this before. Airplanes mm-hmm. are designed to be operated within yeah. a very specific envelope of tolerances. So according to calculations based on the flight data recorder, the airplane's maximum rate of descent recorded was about 39,000 feet a minute. So from cruising altitude, you know, they would hit the ocean in about a minute. That's really fast. A typical descent when you're coming into land might be 1,000 feet a minute, 500 feet a minute, somewhere around there. So (laughs) it was very significantly faster. So shortly after the airplane's rate of descent began to decrease, the left and right elevator surfaces began to move in opposite directions. And just just to refresh everyone, the elevators are like the the tail end of the tail. Uh, <laughs> they're the parts uh, on the horizontal stabilizer that deflect either up or down to make the nose go up or down. So like what I said a little while ago was that as they crossed through 27,300 feet, the flight data recorder recorded both elevator surfaces began to move in the nose up direction. However, shortly after that, the elevators began to move in opposite directions. One was trying to nose the plane up, and the other was trying to nose the plane down. Does that make it like barrel roll? No, not necessarily. You would do that. You would do something like uh, like a roll with the ailerons. Mm-hmm. Normally, your elevators don't... Okay, so I have to be very careful what I say here. Uh, again, i got to stress I'm not a pilot, especially not a commercial airline pilot. Uh-huh. Normally, your elevators move in unison together. In some planes, and this is one of these planes... They can move separately from each other in case there's a problem with one of the elevators. It allows mm. pilots to still use the other one to maintain some level of control. And that is the case with the 767. However, in this case, the left elevator was moving in a nose-up direction, while the right elevator was moving in a nose-down direction. And was that the, the first officer? Correct. The first officer's side is indicating nose-down. <sighs> The engine start lever switches for both engines were then moved to the cutoff position at 150 and 23 seconds, which cuts off the fuel flow to the engines, which would cause them to shut down in five to six seconds. Oh my, he, he, wait, he's cutting off the engines? Right. The fuel to the engines? The, yeah, he's, he's starving the, the fuel. And the throttle levers moved from their idle positions to full throttle, and the speed brake handle was moved to its fully deployed position. And during this time, the captain was asking, what is this? Did you shut the engines? And oh then said, God. get away from the engines. And the first officer responded with, it's shut. Oh, this guy's crazy. He's... Uh, yeah, so... <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I mean I, that I, not I, maybe literally, but like he's he's crashing the plane, right? I mean... Uh, yeah, I, I have... Okay, I'm going to... I'll, I'll give... I'll talk more about that in a bit. I want to finish covering <laughs> okay, okay, the, right. the actual crash. But yeah, this is, this is a complicated one. This podcast is sponsored by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients, seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store, count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. Select meals from the Taste of Summer series that are sure to become everyone's new favorites like Old Bay Shrimp and Sausage Boil and family-style grilled steak lettuce wraps. I know that all sounds complicated, but even I can do it. Trust me. 
They've got foolproof, step-by-step recipes. It means a joyful cooking experience and a stress-free summer. Plus, HelloFresh cuts back on time spent in the kitchen with meals ready in about 30 minutes or less. I just made HelloFresh last night. I uh, had a, a baked pasta dish. It was a, like a baked penne pasta with marinara sauce. Uh, it was so delicious, so good. It was really fast to do. Just, you know, made the sauce in a pan, boiled some, some pasta, put it all together in a, a pan that goes into the oven, heat it up for a couple minutes. Awesome. So good. So go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown16. Use code BlackBoxDown16. That's BlackBoxDown in the number one and the number six for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. So that's HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown16. Code BlackBoxDown16. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you like the great outdoors, but, you know, in in limited fashion. Like I like to enjoy the great outdoors in my backyard. Uh, (laughs) You know, let's call it the the little great outdoors. And uh, sometimes, you know, you can have great backyard activities. And some of those best moments happen around a roaring fire. And a smokeless fire pit from Solo Stove makes your outdoor moments even more memorable. Because instead of having to constantly dodge campfire fumes, you can sit back, relax, actually enjoy the fire. I think Solo Stove's great. I have it out on my uh, patio in my backyard. Uh, It's super easy to light up, super easy to get going. Smokeless design makes it great. I don't have to worry about stinking like, you know, that campfire smoke, which is awful because it always seems like it follows you no matter where you move. It's weird. But anyway, it's so nice to look at. It's all, you know, stainless steel. It's beautiful, functional, works great. I love it. Uh, So you can upgrade your backyard with Solo Stove Fire Pit and create story-worthy moments without the fireside fumes. Stainless steel construction designed to regulate airflow, burn more efficiently. So little smoke, you'll wonder how there's so much fire. It's the perfect catalyst for getting outside, spending more time with family and friends. You can build lasting memories around a Solo Stove Fire Pit. Solo Stove Fire Pits are brilliantly engineered to be easy to use. They're built to last, easy to light with just a few bits of starter. Your fire's blazing in minutes. They're so confident that you'll love it. They offer a lifetime warranty and a 30-day free return policy. Right now, you can get big discounts on all fire pits during Solo Stove's 4th of July sale. Use promo code BLACKBOXDOWN at solostove.com for an extra $10 off. That's solostove.com, promo code BLACKBOXDOWN for $10 off on top of their incredible 4th of July discounts. Make sure you hurry. 4th of July sale ends July 10th. Between 150 and 31 seconds and 150 and 37 seconds, the captain repeatedly said, pull with me. However, the flight data recorder indicated that the elevator surfaces remained in a split condition with the left nose up and the right nose down. The flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder then stopped recording at 150 and 36 seconds and 150 and 38 seconds. The last secondary radar transponder return received was at 150 and 34 seconds. That's, that's presumably about the time that it hit the ocean. Mm-hmm. The remainder of the information from the flight comes from the airplane's two debris fields and recovered primary radar data from Riverhead, New York, North Truro, and Nantucket, Massachusetts. And uh, I remember I talked about earlier how the dive had kind of stopped briefly and they'd kind of pulled up. Mm -hmm. When that happened, the flight began to climb to about 25,000 feet and changed from a heading of 080 degrees to 140 degrees before it started descending again until it impacted the ocean. So, like I said, they had stabilized for a little while, but then they kind of entered a right turn and then started descending again, and that's when they hit the ocean. So because the flight crashed in international waters, the International Civil Aviation Organization assigned jurisdiction of the crash to the country registered you know, for the aircraft, which Egypt Air, it's Egypt. Okay. But at the request of the Egyptian government, the NTSB took the lead on the investigation with the Egyptian Civil Aviation Authority participating. You know, this crash was closer to the United States. It's going to be an expensive endeavor. The NTSB mm. would probably be involved anyway because it was an American manufactured plane. So the Egyptian Civil Aviation Authority just kind of 
deferred the investigation to the NTSB. Okay. Which is not uncommon. We've covered stuff like this before, you know, how complicated these things can be. So examination of the wreckage revealed no evidence of pre-existing fatigue, corrosion, or mechanical damage that could have contributed to the airplane's initial descent. There was also no evidence of an explosion, fire damage, or impact of the foreign object. There's no evidence found of any air traffic control problems or issues involving the weather. Additionally, the NTSB's examination of the accident airplane's maintenance records revealed no evidence of any mechanical problems that could have played a role in the accident sequence. Interviews were conducted at the request of the Egyptian government, and one captain reported that he had experienced autopilot difficulties in the accident airplane the day before the accident. However, the NTSB believes that these difficulties were likely the result of improper autopilot approach mode selection. And on top of that, no reports of anomalies were made into the airplane's maintenance logbooks. And the first officer of that flight did not mention any difficulties when he was interviewed a few days later. So, you know, they're doing what they normally do, like digging Mm -hmm. into the history of the plane to see, you know, if there was a problem with it. Yeah, and there wasn't. Not that they found, correct. Immediately after the airplane's initial nose-down dive, the relief first officer would have felt an immediate uncomfortable sensation as the airplane's load factor decreased to near zero Gs. Uh, like I said, like it's almost like you're floating. You, you know, you, you know when you go down a roller coaster and you you get that feeling like in your stomach, uh-huh. like it's floating. Like that's what it would have felt like. He should also have noted sudden changes in the airplane's pitch attitude, pitch rate, airspeed, and altitude. In response to these obvious cues, the relief first officer did not attempt to counter the dive by commanding nose up elevator, a largely intuitive pilot response to initiate recovery. So they're saying that even though it was dark outside and he couldn't see anything because they're over the ocean. One, he should have felt the dive, and two, the instrument should have showed him what was happening, and they did not notice him do anything to try to initiate a recovery. Nor did the relief first officer exhibit any audible expression of anxiety or surprise Mm -hmm. or call for help during the airplane's initial dive or any time during the remainder of the recorded portions of the accident sequence. Okay. So they're just kind of like... Like, like what you were getting at earlier, like did this guy mm-hmm. crash the plane intentionally? That's what it seems like. Right. That's totally what it seems like. And at the relief first officer's suggestion, a transfer of control at the first officer's position occurred earlier than normal during the accident flight. We covered that. He came in to fly the plane ahead of schedule. Mm-hmm. And the relief first officer was alone in the cockpit when he manually disconnected the autopilot and moved the throttle levers from cruise to idle. There was no evidence of any airplane system malfunction, conflicting air traffic, or other event that would have prompted these actions. The nature and degree of the subsequent nose-down elevator movements were not consistent with those that might have resulted from a mechanical failure, but could be explained by pilot input. So they're saying that this Uh nose-down input, they can't figure out a mechanical reason for it, but it could be explained by the pilot doing it himself. There was no apparent reason for the relief first officer's nose-down elevator inputs, The Relief First Officer's calm repetition of the phrase beginning about 74 seconds before the airplane's dive began and continuing until just after the captain returned to the cockpit without any call for help or other audible reaction of surprise or alarm from the Relief First Officer after the sudden dive is not consistent with the reaction that would be expected from a pilot who's encountering an unexpected or uncommanded flight condition. So Mm -hmm. they're saying he's not acting in the way you would expect someone in this kind of situation. Mm-hmm. The absence of any attempt by the relief first officer to recover from the accident airplane's sudden dive is also inconsistent with his having encountered an unexpected or uncommanded flight condition. The relief first officer's failure to respond to the command captain's questions upon the captain's return to the cockpit is also inconsistent with the reaction that one would expect from a pilot who's encountering an uncommanded or undesired flight condition. Uh, so again, you remember I said the captain came yeah. in, was asking what's happening, and there was kind of no response from the relief first officer. Nose-up elevator movements began only after the captain returned to the cockpit. 
Seconds after the nose-up elevator movements began, the elevator surfaces began moving in different directions with the captain's control column commanding nose-up movement and the relief first officer's control column commanding nose-down movement. After the elevator split began, the relief first officer shut down the engines. The captain repeatedly asked the relief first officer to pull with him, but the relief first officer continued to command nose-down elevator movement. The captain's actions were consistent with an attempt to recover the accident airplane and the relief first officers were not. Yeah. So, seems very... Cut and dry, right? Yeah. In, in in fact, in the notes here in the script, Dennis points out that in one of our previous episodes in China Airlines 140, I made a comment saying that it's really in an incident like this that an accident is cut and dry and points to one thing. And this in the NTSB report clearly states that, you know, it puts all of the blame on the relief first officer. It says, you know, he was diving the plane. The Egyptian government does not agree with this report at all. Uh, <laughs> the Egyptian government uh, has said that they regret letting the NTSB take over this investigation that they feel like there were questions that could have been brought up that never were. And in the Egyptian government's mind, there was a malfunction with the plane that was covered up by the NTSB. And I'm not oh. saying I, I don't agree with their, their situation either. I do, I do not agree with that position. That being said, I felt like there were things that did in, that did warrant more, more thought, right? Like yeah. simple things, even like the, the phrase that I keep talking about. You know, where it's like, it sounds kind of sinister without this context, but if you give it context and with the context of the fact that Egyptians might say this phrase a lot, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's not as, as evil as it sounds. The Egyptian government also contends that when the engines were idled, remember, like I said, um, uh-huh. he went from cruise power to idle power. They The Egyptian government says that the first officer, the relief first officer was trying to keep the plane from gaining speed and that when he cut the engines... That it, it, it wasn't as sinister as it sounds that he was going through the required restart procedure because there was a low pressure, low oil pressure warning light in the cockpit. And he thought that the engines, the Egyptian government speculates that the first officer thought the engines had flamed out and that he started going through the restart procedure. And the Egyptian government says that maybe the captain, Habashi, made the same mistake, which is why they discussed the engine cuts. And they, their, their position is that the cockpit voice recorder exchange isn't as contentious as the NTSB makes it out to be. Oh, so that it, it's hmm. more like almost more like asking, did you cut the engines? Like they're both going through mental checklists. Oh, like, mm. so it's not like accusatory, like, right. Did you cut not, the engines? <laughs> exactly. Did you, yeah. <laughs> did you, did, did you cut the, yeah. Again, I don't, all the discussions were in a foreign language. I can only read transcripts. I can't speak to that mm-hmm. one way or another, but that is the Egyptian government's position as far as what was happening. What did they think initially caused it then? If Okay, okay. so <laughs> I'm still working through a lot of the things that the Egyptian <laughs> government said. Uh-huh. The Egyptian government says that since they were going so fast over the operating speed of the 767, that it's possible that there was some kind of aerodynamic anomaly, which was putting pressure on the elevator, which was causing this split elevator condition that they were in. Okay. Since the plane was uh-huh. outside of its operating envelope, that the winds may have been forcing one elevator up and one elevator down, and it's possible that they couldn't pull out of it. I'm not saying I believe that. I'm just saying <laughs> that's the Egyptian government's position on this. So they're saying the winds were such that they pushed the elevators opposite directions, and then it was such a strong force that the pilots couldn't do it manually? Correct. Are there not hydraulics? Okay, so I I will speak to that. They did say something else that would explain that as well. Okay. Each elevator is moved by three actuators. Mm -hmm. 
And if two of these actuators were to fail on the same side, it would cause a massive pitch down motion. So they started to claim that some of these actuators failed, which is also why they couldn't pull it down. So I believe their claim is that the aerodynamic forces were so great, it broke the actuators, which then made it impossible to pull back up on one side. And they claimed that they found rivets in the crash scene that were broken that appeared to be broken in two different directions, one from the crash and another direction from some kind of failure. Again, the NTSB disagrees with this. This is just the conclusion that the Egyptian government came up with, and they're one of the things that they're trying to show. Mm-hmm. So they found rivets that they believe showed that they failed in flight, and they had proof showing, in their mind, they had proof showing that these rivets failed, caused some actuators to fail, which caused the elevators to enter this split condition. But they didn't split till right till the end. Well, they split after they started recovering, like at 23,000 yeah. feet. So that being said, the NTSB says that even if the actuators failed and jammed, that this should be recoverable using the non-failed elevator by pulling back in the control column. And they also said that such a failure would produce a downward pitch steeper than the one that, they, that actually occurred on this flight. Oh. That being said, uh-huh. the FAA did take this sheared rivets theory seriously. And they went ahead and inspected all 767s and 757s to try to see if they could find evidence of broken rivets in other planes that uh-huh. you know would lend credibility to this. They found similar failures in over 100 other 767 and 757s. Oh, the plot thickens. <laughs> they, they fixed them all. They were all subsequently fixed. That uh-huh. being said, it's possible this rivet was broken but did not contribute to the crash. Mm. I'm just trying to give the Egyptian government's yeah. point of view on, on some of these things. Yeah, well, I guess if there were, you said they found another hundred of them and those planes weren't crashing. Right, that's an excellent point. So yeah, you, you would think that if this was such a widespread problem that you would have heard of another failure or another crash of some kind. Yeah, were there any others from that, from the rivets? No, not, not as far as I know, no. And then on top of that, this is more anecdotal kind of thing. Uh-huh. Before the flight, that really first officer, Al Batuti, he had purchased some. Uh, he had purchased a tire that he was taking back to Egypt with him for. I believe it was either his son or his son-in-law. And uh, before the flight, he had called back to Egypt to try to arrange for his son to meet him at the airport to get this tire. And he got into an argument with him because the son didn't want to come to the airport to get the tire. Tire like like a car tire. Okay, that's a weird thing to travel with. It's a weird thing to travel with, but. It just seems unusual if you're planning to crash the plane. Why yeah. would you go get the tire? And then why would you get into an argument with your son about picking it up at the airport? Mm-hmm. You know, unless maybe he just had the idea once he was in the air and decided to do it then. Yeah. Or he was so upset that his son wouldn't pick up. The tire. <laughs> he wouldn't pick it up. So this is all, you know, kind of the, the counter arguments that the Egyptian government brings up to try mm-hmm. to discredit the NTSB investigation. All that being said, though, Albatuti was uh, was kind of in trouble. He had gotten in trouble right before this flight. So, you know, Egypt Air, they had a block of rooms at a hotel in New York because they flew this route a lot. And, you know, mm-hmm. they had to have rooms for, uh, for all of their crew. And he was kind of notorious around that hotel with the hotel oh. employees for uh, being someone who was a troublemaker. It was reported that on multiple occasions over the previous two years, he had been conducting or engaging in some lewd acts in the hotel. Okay. And he had been kind of, uh, uh, he was accused of following some female guests to their rooms and listening at their doors. Some of the the maids were like kind of afraid of him and would, you know, 
avoid him if at all possible. Oh, he's been a creep. Yeah, the, and the hotel had considered banning him. Oh, wow. The airline was aware of these problems and they'd gotten after him. And in fact, before this flight, remember I said the chief 767 pilot was on this flight? Uh-huh. Before this flight, allegedly that chief pilot had sat down with uh, Batuti and told him, this is your last time coming to the United States. You're not going to be allowed to, to fly over here anymore. And Batuti was already at an age where he was about to retire. Like I said, he was 59. Uh, I believe he had to retire when he was 60. Oh. The reason that he had never made his way up to captain, again, this is speculation. It's speculated that his English wasn't very good. He didn't have sufficient English skills to communicate with air traffic control or, you know, to do the job effectively. So that's why he was kind of relegated to a first officer position. And also he, I believe he had said himself that he liked being the most senior first officer because he got his choice of scheduling. Like as far as seniority, he got to fly the routes he wanted. He could, you know, fly when he wanted. And that's why he, you know, he was on this kind of high profile New York to Cairo flight. And that's why he always gets what he wants. Right. <laughs> so kind of playing back to the beginning where he shows up mm-hmm. and kind of has his way with, you know, being showing up early and taking over for the flight. So you can see why I didn't want to say some of this stuff earlier. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like building to all these possibilities. So I'm not saying that, you know, I, I just want to be clear. I'm not saying that the Egyptian government is right in the things that they said. It's just that they, they, I want to be sure to highlight how much they disagree with the NTSB and some of the points that they brought up. Some of which I think are valid, like the, like the language thing. I think that's very important. Yeah. I guess I'm curious, the Egyptian Civil Aviation Authority, are they saying, hey, we're upset that you didn't even raise the possibility of these other things? That, hey, here's things that could have happened, you know, like just, just that there is it, or were they saying this is 100% what happened? This guy didn't crash the plane. It was the divots. Like, were they convinced? Rivets. Rivets. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you are correct. They are 100% convinced that it's a cover-up and that the NTSB is covering for Boeing trying to hide a serious problem in the planes, which sounds, you know, at first glance, you think, oh, that's kind of crazy. But based on some of the things we've talked about before, Mm -hmm. it doesn't, in some of the incidents we've talked about in the past, it's not, you know, it's not such an unusual thought. Yeah, it's not out of the realm of possibility. possibility. Correct. But... The rivets, the, the, uh, how long had this problem been going on? Uh, I don't know. This is how they you know, found out about the problem. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't tell you when it started. Presumably from the beginning of the manufacturer of the Boeing 767. If I had to take a guess wildly, I would say that. That would be like the first prototype was flown in 1981. It was certified in 1982. This was in 1999. So 16, 17 years maybe? Yeah, that's a long time. Yeah. But again, like... I don't know about that. So I'm just I'm just mm-hmm. guessing as to presumably how long it could have been. So very complicated. Nonetheless, there are findings, of course, and there's really only three. This is unusual. This is a very unusual report. Uh, normally, we go through the findings and it's like a long mm-hmm. list. There's three. <laughs> now, of course, this is the NTSB report we're talking about now. The accident airplane's nose down movements did not result from a failure in the elevator control system or any other airplane failure. The accident airplane's movements during the initial part of the accident sequence were the result of the relief first officer's manipulation of the controls. The accident airplane's movements after the command captain returned to the cockpit were the result of both pilots' inputs, including opposing elevator inputs where the relief first officer continued to command nose down and the captain commanded nose up elevator movements. Yeah, I'm, that's it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they really just blame the relief first officer for it. Yeah. They determined the probable cause of the accident is the airplane's departure from normal cruise flight and subsequent impact with the Atlantic Ocean as a result of the relief first officer's flight control inputs. 
However, the reason for his actions were not determined. So mm. they don't know. And another unusual thing about this report, there were no recommendations included in the report. Really? Not even... Yeah. I mean, is it... If there's, if there's so many pilots on the plane, is it not standard procedure to keep two in the cockpit at all times? Nowadays, uh, it is, uh, especially in the United, the United States, I believe, adopted that rule before other countries did. But yeah, now, uh, if, if it's not two pilots, there's a, I'm sure you probably noticed when you fly in a mm-hmm. plane, if one of the pilots has to come out and like use the bathroom, then no flight attendant will go in to the cockpit. I don't yeah. know if you've ever paid attention when they do that. There's Now, there's always two people in the cockpit at any given time. So yeah, it would there would never be just one person in the cockpit anymore. Because again, that's that like the single you know point of failure. It's right, just one person. Yeah, and especially nowadays, cockpit doors are so secure that mm-hmm. you know you can't break into them. Yeah. So that's why they're you know even if it's not a pilot, they'll put a flight attendant in there to open the door. You know if something terrible goes go uh, happens. So like I've said many times in this episode. After formally ceding responsibility for the investigation of the accident to the NTSB, the Egyptian authorities became increasingly unhappy with the direction of this investigation. They launched their own investigation, uh, and you know I've read numerous things from it as well. And they concluded, the Egyptian Civil Aviation Authority concluded, that the relief first officer did not deliberately dive the airplane into the ocean and that mechanical failure was a plausible and likely cause of the accident. The NTSB investigation and its results drew criticism from the Egyptian government, they put forward several alternative theories, which I've kind of talked about. The theories were tested by the NTSB, but none were found to be the cause of the accident. Like we said, well, we talked about that uh, hard over of the elevator. Flight data recorder shows the elevator split condition. We, I've, I've kind of covered some yeah. of this already. They didn't make any move to update the rivets until the Egyptian Aviation Association told them about it, right? Correct. And in the end, uh, I forgot, I, I made a little note here for myself. I didn't see it till right now. Like I said, they they looked, they found a problem in 100 different aircraft. There was a total of 136 sheared rivets leading to 34 grounded aircraft. So, I mean, this sounds serious, right? Mm-hmm. So there may have been an issue there. But that being said, the NTSB does not believe that issue caused this crash. It could be the kind of thing where they discovered the issue because of the crash. Like once they started examining yeah. the pieces, they're like, oh, weird. These pieces were broken. Good thing we found it before any plane crashed from this. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a difficult position. The NTSB report actually includes a response from the Egyptian Civil Aviation Authority at the end of the document. The response is 43 pages long, and I'm going to read the conclusion from it here. Oh, wow. Uh, and this is, this is the Egyptian government's uh, conclusion, or I should say the, the end of their response. In summary, it is obvious that the NTSB has not done the type of professional accident investigation expected by the Egyptian government when delegation was convened in November 1999. Pursuant to Section 5.3 of Annex 13, it was anticipated that the investigation would be conducted as a partnership between equals. However, it soon became apparent that the NTSB leadership did not regard the Egyptian delegation as an equal partner and shared its process, if at all, on a selective and seemingly random basis. Often, the Egyptian delegation read about the NTSB's views in the press without prior communication. Therefore, the responsibility of the Egyptian government... It it is because, you know, it's kind of a sensational accident, and the press Mm -hmm. was writing things up and, you know, printing, you know, what they thought. And uh, the Egyptian government wasn't happy about that, you know, yeah, because they weren't getting the information firsthand. Yeah, and I understand that if they're supposed to be working together on it and they're finding out from press. Yeah, I think the the NTSB was of the opinion that 
they were giving the Egyptian government the information. The information they couldn't give them is what the press was writing, right? They have no idea what the press is going to say. Mm. Or maybe they were giving the information, but the Egyptian government, they didn't like the information, so they were... Yeah, it could be. Yeah. There's one more uh, little uh, paragraph here that they wrote. Therefore, the responsibility of the Egyptian government for the integrity of air safety and to underscore the work the Egyptian investigation team has done in the past 17 months obliges the government of Egypt to prepare a comprehensive and objective report of the accident. This report is an accurate technical document for use by an aviation industry that is truly concerned with air safety and addressing the safety issues of Egypt Air Flight 990 accident on October 31st, 1999. So they're kind of like, we're going to make our own report. Mm -hmm. But of course, it's not the official one because the responsibility was given to the NTSB. So, you know, after the crash, the airline changed the flight number for this flight from JFK to Cairo from flight 990 to flight 986 with the outbound changing from 989 to 985. And they discontinued the Los Angeles leg of the service. And there's actually a monument to this flight in the Island Cemetery in Newport, Rhode Island. You know, I see on social media, sometimes people go to these uh, memorials and they send them to us. uh, And I think it's really cool to see them. So if you're in the area and uh, you go take a picture, uh, make sure you send it to us uh, at Black Box Down Pod. Mm-hmm. I think it's, 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 it's cool, I think, when people are, are so interested in, in these incidents that they go, you know, see something in person. Yeah. But that's it. That's Egypt Air Flight 990. Seemingly very straightforward incident that does have a few wrinkles to it and ends up with a little bit of like international a wrinkles, intrigue. A few rivets. <laughs> a few tires. <laughs> Yeah, there was just a lot going on. And it was, it was, I don't know, it was kind of a challenge to, to balance how to present uh-huh. some of this information, you know, because I don't know how much I agree with the Egypt air or sorry, with the Egyptian government side of things. But, you know, there were some important things like those rivets, you know, even if yeah. the, 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 even if those didn't contribute to this crash, they found out about an issue and, you know, aircraft were grounded. There were repairs made because of this, but I don't know. And I think also the whole phrase thing gets gets mm-hmm. blown out of proportion a little bit. The cultural aspect of yeah, right. Uh, I'm I'm uh, you know I'm I've never been to Egypt. I'm top of being a pilot. I'm also not an Egyptian, so um, I don't know uh, about that stuff. But I think it's important to give context and not like yeah. just jump to a negative conclusion about it. Well, sorry if I did. <laughs> no, no, no. That, and I I think uh, I think just about anybody would. Yeah, and that's you know that's why I felt it was important to to talk about that a little more. But anyway, as always, give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod. Like Chris mentioned, we got a premium uh, version of the podcast you can listen to. And we got some merch if you want to visit our link tree or head over to store.roosterteeth.com. Uh, we got mugs. We got uh, bumper stickers. We got shirts. I love them. I think they're great. <laughs> I wear, <laughs> I wear, them all I wear the our time. shirts all the time. All the time. I think people are sick of seeing me wear it. I know. I think uh, that one, the black one with like the the, uh, the schematic the design. Of the, yeah, the schematic. Kayla's like, that's like the only shirt you wear. I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I wear the, your bad attitude has upset me a lot when I take uh, flying lessons. Uh, it makes the, <laughs> it makes the flight instructors really laugh. <laughs> <laughs> what do you, do you tell them the, like that? It, it's like, well, uh, it, yeah, if they, if they ask, uh, I'll, I'll talk about it. But if not, I mean, it's just like, I, I think it's just generally a funny shirt. Uh, it is. <laughs> this is, this is completely out tangent. Do, do how many of your flight instructors have you have like, or where you have a podcast or, or have listened to it? Um, or do you just not talk about it because it's like, I don't know. Normally don't talk about it. They're, they're, they're aware of it, but it's not something we, we, we talk about uh, really at all. We, we'll talk about incidents uh, mm-hmm, in general, mm-hmm. but not like, you know, oh, I'm doing research for my podcast. 
But yeah, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week with another episode. Oh, oh recommend us to uh, someone who likes frogs because rivets and ribbits. Oh, and okay. That's right. a weird right. recommendation, but just, that- you know, someone who likes frogs. All right, that's enough, Chris. <laughs> All right, bye. <laughs> <laughs>